Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action blo- auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that talk, matters. matters. Transforming, Transforming truth, truth to power, 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 one broadcast, one broadcast, broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening. This is Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and it's so good to have you with us tonight. And if you are new to us, we do have an open and lively chat room. And you, if you're listening over the phone or on one of your smart devices, or if you're at your computer, you can come to www.com blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. You might want to do that because we've got quite a show for you tonight. It's this weekly Our Common Ground where friends come to meet comrades. And uh, we are pleased to have you with us. We've got some uh, news items that we want to discuss with you in the first hour Um, Very important update on Marissa Alexander and some other issues. And as we complete those, we will be going into our feature segment, Colorism and the Black Community. And we hope you'll stay with us for that. Our number is 347-838-9852. 
I don't know if you have noticed, but the weather is indeed changing, and many of you out there across the country and, and the United States are starting to see some semblance of spring, and you are indeed blessed. I see no semblance of spring anywhere around me up here in this northern plantation that they call Boston. So uh, look around and see the world changing all around you. And um, again, you might want to write this down, 347-838-9852. You know that we try very hard to prepare programs for you on a weekly basis that will inform you, that will inform your sense of examining uh, liberation and all the struggle that comes with it. As many of you, our regular listeners, know, I am a proponent that you must act locally. No matter how many books of black liberation, black history, black culture, black, 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 black that you read, if you do not transpose it into how you live your life, the activities and the intensity in which you engage in your community. Your children are not safe. You have no future. And if you do not understand that from your reading, then you need to start reading the books, say, chapter by chapter, because if you keep reading the same chapter and over and over, you'll never get through the full complement of what the book has to offer or what the study has to offer. One of the things that we are not seeing, that we should be seeing, is total engagement. And I cannot tell you, the cuckoos and the crazies are out there. The Koch brothers are investing the money. See, they know what they need to do, and they are doing it. And you know who I'm talking about when I say they. We seem not to know what we are doing. And there, there are only two things that we can do at this point to ensure that we are protecting the interests of black people in this country. That is to resist by agitating and organizing. And if we do not go and make sure. I mean, this whole issue of voter suppression, this is a serious strategy on their part, and it is working. And if it works in November in the 2014 midterm elections, we will continue to get more and more powerful of what they have been doing. We'll get more Ted Cruz's. We'll have more Rand Paul supporters in the House of Representatives. John Boehner has lost all Boner has lost all control over his people. So there is no GOP. It's the neocons, the neocon evangelicals, and it's the Tea Party. That's what you have. And their goal is two things to stop any progressive public policy formulation that goes on in the con- – I mean, Washington is over. Why don't we just say that? Washington is a no 
brainer, no game. It's done. There is nothing that the President of the United States can do about it. There's nothing that you can do about it today except for get ready for this strategy that must be seen as warfare. I mean, there is a lot of to say about the notion that electoral uh, electoral politics and political activity is is only one very diluted way in which to save our people. But it is a way. Because if we I, I, think about it. I want you to really think about it. I want you to get I want you to get your branch bourbon and your salsa water or whatever your 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 Boone farm wine or your tote and think about this. If the Republican candidates who are no longer the GOP If the Republican candidates win overwhelmingly in November, you will have a Republican control. And when I say Republican, I am not talking about the GOP. I am not talking about people like even um, Mr. McCain. I'm talking about the crazies, the absolute crazies. You will have... Rick Perry and Rick Santorum and and Rand Paul times 10 in the U.S. Congress. And the likelihood that the Republicans, the Republican clan, the Republican clan, K-L-A-N, will take over the Senate. And then there is no hope. Your government is flushed. Do you understand flushed? And I can't explain it anymore. To be able to explain it to to you any more clearly than that, I I don't have the capabilities. It's simply above my pay grade. Above my pay grade. So if you are not doing anything about fighting voter suppression or even fighting it by way of making sure that it doesn't work in your community. You're doing the black future a very, very, very uh, evil misdeed. You know, we have at some point... Black people still don't get it. Black people still don't get it. And we better get it by, this is so pivotal. Because another thing that is going to happen, and I know all y'all going to be so outraged, is not going to, it's going to be comical. Because if the Republicans maintain the House, they already said they're going to do it. And they're going to do it. They will move to impeach this president. Now, some of you might not have any problems with that. But I have big problems with that because it is evil, it is vindictive, and it has nothing to do 
with his policies. After all, here is a man who invested in a plan that they developed, the American Health Care Plan, was a Republican proposal until the black man became the president. And you know that that is the bottom line. It is the bottom line to all of this. So, you know, all you people who say you love Barack Obama so much, they're about to jam him up if they are successful in in November 2014 at the midterm. They, they will jam him up. You won't hear from him for months. So we better get, we, we, better, we better get it, and we better just, I know I said I was going to talk about some other stuff, but I, I just had to, I have to get that. You know, and the other is that I keep saying that I'm not sure why. But we've been, I have been doing this for 29 years, saying the same thing and getting... Black people still don't get it. And, and black people still don't get it. Because you cannot not organize your community. You cannot agitate without organization. You, not, you cannot effectively create political empowerment without agitation, without effective and successful organization. And, you know, it's real funny that we delivered this president and we think that we can't break Congress. How does that, how does that equate? Because all of the things that you hear about what's going on in North Carolina, South Carolina, Ohio, Wisconsin, Texas, Georgia, Florida, it's coming your way because if if they win, and I'm talking about the Republic Klan, K-L-A-N, if they win, you ain't seen nothing yet. Talking about wage equality, be worried about whether people can eat and people are worried about surviving now, but if you get the new Republican clans that's waiting to come into this House of Representatives and this Senate, you will see more than cuts to the food food stamp program. So I, I just needed to get that, and welcome again for, especially for all you newcomers, um, and I want to I want you to know if you're on your smart device or you're on Skype and you want to switch off and just call and listen on your um, on your smart device. The number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. We have room for you. But let me get to this um, update on Marissa Alexander. If you will recall, uh, two years ago. Uh, I was very active and at the forefront of raising the issue of Marissa Alexander, who is a young woman, um, African-American woman in Florida, who shot warning shots to a husband who had a record of uh, abuse 
and violence against her. Nine, uh, uh, six days after she had uh, their child, and she shot into the ceiling of their house, and uh, she was arrested and tried, and um, she received a 20-year sentence in state prison. Well, last November, she was given a reprieve in that a Florida Circuit Court ruled that um, the judge in her case uh, improperly instructed the jury in regard to the Florida, notorious Florida law, Stand Your Ground. Uh, she is to go to retrial uh, and a new trial in July of 2014. Last month, as I told you, the Florida State Attorney General, uh, Angela Curry, um, announced that she would seek separate charges in this case, which would not only um, be so punitive, but Marissa Alexander would risk 60 years in prison as opposed to the original sentence of 20, as opposed to the original plea bargain that Angela Corey had felt Marissa Alexander should have accepted. And because Melissa Al Marissa Alexander did not accept the plea bargain, it has been a personal vind vindictive campaign against her by this state attorney general, Angela Corey. Well, it turns out, and here is the update, that this week a letter from state attorney, Angela Corey, went out to local, local legislators about the Alexander case and gained some attention of the governor's office and the the original recipients of the letter concerning this case were local legislators, former state attorney Henry, Harry Hornstein thinks that it was intended more for the public than for politicians. The governor's office has indicated that they requested the letter. And uh, it is my opinion that the letter should never have been sent out in the first place. Um, this uh, a former attor state attorney, Harry Hornstein, submitted uh, a statement, and he said that he thought, quote, it was totally inappropriate. From my discussions with lawyers for whom I think the public has greatest respect, the responses were unbelievable, outrageous, and according to everyone, unethical. And I believe it is legal, it is an issue of um, legal and official ethics. And he went on to say that State Attorney Corey has received numerous requests for information about the case um, and um, 
Corey has issued a statement which says that the request came from the governor's office and local legislators, and she even named a state representative who had requested a meeting to discuss the facts of the case, and this is why she sent out the letter. In the meantime, <laughs> another part two of the update on the Marissa. See, one of the things that makes me really, really angry about this Marissa Alexander case is that I spent two weeks contacting every member of the black press, every black commentator that ever appeared on MSNBC, every black person I knew, informing them about this case because at the time nobody really knew anything about it. Um, as a result of that work, I got no responses. All your favorite commentators, nobody was interested in doing it about, you know, you know how you all approach black people. Well, who is this lady? Maybe she did do something. Uh, so we couldn't get any traction in getting attention prior to the trial, prior to the original sentencing. And um, I had talked to her first husband, who is Lincoln Alexander, who has led this campaign, and he had so graciously arranged an interview for me with her on the day of the sentencing because we were all so sure that she would get, at the very least, probation. My opinion is she should never have been arrested. She should never have been charged. But Angela Corey, the state attorney, has a record of overcharging, over-prosecuting African Americans in the state of Florida. So I won't belabor that. You know that story. You can go into our archives and hear our live uh, one-hour interview with Marissa Alexander, and I was just bowled over when she announced um, on my show uh, that she had received 20 years but in addition to the letter that went out from the state attorney, Angela Corey, also a one-page letter went to Angela Corey this week from some area pastors, pastors, uh, to once again offer, asking state attorney Angela Corey to offer Marissa Alexander a three-year sentence for her aggravated assault charges. Alexander had refused a three-year plea deal during her first trial. So now she's, she faces a 60-year sentence. And here are some presumably African-American pastors who are now seeking to have a plea deal for Marissa Alexander when she has claimed she was standing her ground. Now, in the first trial, the judge in the case ruled that, ruled stand your ground out, and she was sentenced to 20 years for three counts of aggravated assault. So here we are, 
with some mater- with some pastors who are advocating for a three-year plea deal. Marissa Alexander has indicated in all forms that she's not interested in the plea deal because she had the right to stand her ground in the same way that um, George Zimmerman had to stand his ground. So that is the update for you, and we uh, want to um, wind it down on Marissa Alexander with this. Well, last night, today the state attorney's office followed up with this, a statement saying the letter had been requested. Those requests have come from the governor's office and local legislators. Now former state attorney Harry Shorstein says Corey's office never should have sent the letter in the first place. Well, you, you, you see, this is the kind of gamemanship that comes out of that state attorney's office. Let me suggest something to you. Um, with this update, I think that you should go to standformarissaalexander.com or do a Google search for her petition and sign the petition. You should also call the governor of Florida's office indicating that what Angela Corey did was highly unethical and bordered on illegal. Just asking. Just asking. Another uh, news item that I want to uh share with you. Our number is 347-838-9852 if you have any comments about the Marissa Alexander case. I'm going to move on. Um, This week, a report, a very staggering report, was released by the Department of Education and the Justice Department on a troubling pattern of zero-tolerance school discipline policies that disproportionately impact minority students in general, but also trickle down to the nation's youngest students. The the report highlights data collection um, in some places that you just won't believe, that thousands of preschoolers are getting suspended and the pattern disproportionately affects African-American children. This is unbelievable. We've been talking about this. I did my first show on the disproportionate um, discipline of black children in Palm Beach County schools in 1982. And here I am. I'm still talking about it. Let's take a look at the report. An education department report says even preschool black students are more likely to be suspended. The report said although black children represent about 18% of kids enrolled in pre-K, they make up almost half of preschoolers suspended. Nationally known educator of at-risk children and former principal Baruti Kafele says studies such as this show the American education problem is not one of achievement. Typically, when I visit a school, it's predominantly African-American. There's a row of chairs 
with a bunch of black boys at all three levels, elementary, middle, and high school, sitting in them, waiting to be disciplined. Baruti says while parenting is the most influential factor in student behavior, the climate in many U.S. schools doesn't help. If a kid is coming from a neighborhood that's dealing with high, high rates of crime, what if I created a climate in that school to tone the mood, the feeling, a culture, a way of life where a kid can literally take off that mask where he's posturing and not have to deal with peer pressure and now I can be myself and I can demonstrate my brilliance. Six percent of preschool programs reported suspending at least one child during the 2011 to 2012 school year. The report was in sync with data that shows black students are three times more likely to be suspended in public schools than white students. Cynthia Levy, AURN.com. And we want to thank Cynthia Levy and American Urban Radio Networks for that report. According to the Associated Press, uh, Attorney General Eric Holder issued a statement, and in his statement he said about this report that racial disparities in school discipline policies are not only well documented among older students, but actually begin during preschool. He also said that every data point represents a life impacted and a future potentially diverted or derailed. He said that this administration is moving aggressively to disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline in order to ensure that all of our young people have equal educational opportunities. And that's a mighty, mighty lofty kind of thing for our attorney general to say. But here's the deal. The deal is this. These people have the ability. Arne Duncan along with the President of the United States, along with the Attorney General of the United States, have the ability to go into a room and carve out a policy which stops the bullshit. And you have the ability to go into your community to talk to your superintendent, and especially these charter schools and Teach for America schools, we better get it. Because our children are be this is do you not see the elements of oppression and repression in all of this? We are never going to have a generation of black children who are free. I'm talking about free. But when we wake up and they declare the presidential results and Herman Cain is in the White House, we'll all be able to say, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, this nation is free at last again. If you don't have a job and you're not rich, blame yourself. You see, the thing is that everybody's worrying about their freedom but us. Nobody's worried about our freedom. So here we have 18% folks, 18% of the students enrolled in preschool nationwide represent nearly half of all preschoolers suspended from preschool programs. I was, I have a Facebook friend whose husband 
is a very, very high-level researcher. She is a college-level, graduate school-level professor, full professor and author. She's been on this show. They got a call from the school to come and get their first grader, and you know what the, the father said? The father said, I'm not coming to pick up anyone. And that's how we have got to fight back. And then we've got to challenge, because our children are going to schools. I, I, I know I have a 12-year-old grandson. In his school, if you look at the disciplinary, the discipline rules, rules of behavior, it's the same rules, I'm sure, that they use at Rikers Island. This is what is happening to our children. And the thing is that we cannot afford another generation. See, because we have to look back and see that we did not challenge these things. We did not challenge these things two and three generations ago, and there you have it. Our number is 347-838-9852. If you're just joining us, this is Our Common Ground. We've got some other news for you, but we will um, certainly share it with you uh, as we go along. I, I, I just think that one of... You know, these are powerful people. These are powerful people who are setting this up. And what do we know about powerful people? What, what is the baseline? What do all men with power want? More power. Absolutely. And if they can break the backs, if they can break the backs of educating of educated informed children going forward they know that they can keep that power now that sounds like a you know i I could look at that and say well it sounds kind of convoluted janice it does but at the heart of that we know that that is the bottom line one of the reasons, you know, I always think about, <laughs> I have to laugh because sometimes I have to, I really, I really think about this, that it took them about six months, really, to fully go into a full-blown psychotic break in this country when Barack Obama was elected president. Took them about six months, and <clears throat> there there were triggers all along. So they decided as to go into a coma. But in the back of their brains, in their coma, this is the this is the Congress and the powerful, the one percenters. They were planning. So we have to plan too. We have to plan, too. Um, <clears throat> the other I said that I was going to share with you uh, another news item that caught my eye 
that is really, really not important, but it's interesting. And this this news report was about my favorite, favorite colored governor. Um, not not my favorite colored governor that was a lieutenant governor, and that's um, Michael Steele, but my favorite colored governor, Bobby Jindal. You know, uh, one of the statements that he made this week, and they didn't even dare to put it on video because I would have grabbed it in a hot second like it was some hot grits and fish with some hot sauce. (laughs) Don't forget the hot sauce. This man is unbelievable. This is what he had to say, and I'll add some of it uh, to you. Our number is 347-838-9852. This is what he had to say this week on uh, in an interview, but in this clip, he tries to clean it up on Meet the Press. I've just got a few seconds left, but I want to ask you as well. First Indian American governor, uh, we have a picture of you going to Disneyland. Where else? Uh, as, as a kid, um, your American dream has been realized. What does it mean to you as a newer generation of politician? You know, it's amazing. My dad's here in the audience, one of nine kids, only one got past the fifth grade, came here with his pregnant wife. What's amazing to me is he had the confidence, didn't know anybody, went through the yellow pages, Mm. calling people, had the confidence he could get a job. He has an accent, not a southern accent, he's got an accent. What's amazing to me, he has lived the American dream. I want my children to have those, those same opportunities. This is the greatest country in the history of the world. Governor Jindal, thank you for being here. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, David. We'll take a break here. Well, that is what he he said on Meet the Press, but this is what he said in another interview in the same week. We still place far too much emphasis on our separateness, our heritage, ethnic background, and skin color. There is nothing wrong with people being proud of their different heritages, We have a long tradition of folks from all different backgrounds incorporating their traditions into the American experience, but we must resist the politically correct trend of changing the melting pot into a salad bowl, e pluribus unum. To translate, it appears that what my favorite colored governor is saying is actually blaming minorities for causing white people to be racist toward them and is calling on minorities to end racism by conforming to American life as white people see it. In short, my favorite colored governor is saying, minorities should be more like white people if they want racism to stop. Now, how about that for some good diversity um, in this country? How about that? 
There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yosemite? And with that, we're going to take a break and take your calls at 347-838-9852. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Is it time for you to upgrade your topic? Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Empowering Black America to achieve that's not, and I also appreciate that post where you were guest on uh, the ladies' uh, talk show. I, I can't remember what it was. Oh, Janice Graham. Yeah, it, that was great. I listened. I had the day off, and it, it was a great. I was doing a little project here at home, and I was listening to that. That was oh, and they were great. I wish I I should contact that lady and get me a copy of that CD so I could pass it out. Make well, a CD. I, I think it's a uh, podcastable, and in fact, I'm going to ask Janice Graham to come on this show and talk yeah, to me about that uh, was what a she does. Interview, you guys. I mean, you guys tore it up. I mean, I was hooked. I mean, I didn't even get my project done. I had to just sit <laughs> in listening. Janice Graham uh, invited me onto her internet radio show. She used to be on. On radio stations too, but uh, you know the radio industry has changed dramatically. She does an internet radio show, and she invited me on this past Saturday night. I went on Facebook and Twitter and said, "Hey, I'm going to be on with Janice Graham," and people were listening, and there was a chat room going. I was on for the whole two hours of a radio show on Saturday night on the phone, and it was it was really really great. I, I, I was honored was to be invited, and we had a great time. And I'm going to invite her on this show, and we'll have Janice Graham on, and we'll introduce her great. to people who don't know who she is. Great. So, Calvin, thank you so very, very much for the kind words. And, and Calvin, you can join us every Saturday night, 10 p.m., here at Our Common Ground on the other side. I'll be listening for you. And, yes, we are podcast. Tune in, Facebook, our website at OurCommonGround.com and at Blog Talk Radio. Here at Our Common Ground, we're sending out the posse looking for the Calvins of the world. Tell your friends. Tell your comrades. Join us on Facebook and share and tell. Our Common Ground, where friends come to meet comrades. I'm Janice Grant, and I'll be listening for you. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., Our Common Ground. Powering up on Black Thought. Yes, we are powering up on Black Thought. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers. 
but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Bessie Coleman, first female black aviator, died at age 34 in 1926. But actress Madeline McRae brings her to life in a one-woman play. McRae says Coleman was a determined woman. Bessie was constantly working towards improving her skills as an aviator and a barnstormer. McRae says Coleman performed aerial stunts during a time when aviation was still in its infancy. Bessie Coleman is a tremendous influence in my life because I gravitate towards people who have a strong determination and belief that they are capable of accomplishing great things. So I always your dreams, our dreams are very valid and that we are born with the ability to do anything that we set our minds to and that it's never too late. Bruce Williams, New York. The move to Selby Financially Strapped Center has many Pittsburghers upset, including Paradise Gray, who says Judith Fitzgerald, the court-appointed receiver, was never appointed to help save the center in the first place. She doesn't come from the black community. She doesn't come from the arts community. She comes from the foreclosure community. Gray moved to the city of Pittsburgh more than 20 years ago and says the city has a treasure trove of black history that needs to be recognized and commemorated. From Frederick Douglass and Martin Delaney to uh, the Crawfords, I mean, George Benson, it's just the Tuskegee Airmen. Paradise Gray says despite the latest move towards liquidation, there's still an effort afoot to try and save the August Wilson Center for African American Culture. And you can get involved in that movement from anywhere in the world. The website that we created is SaveTheAugustWilsonCenter.com. And on Facebook, there's a couple of pages, uh, Saving Black History in Pittsburgh, Save the August Wilson Center. If you type them into the search box, on Facebook, you'll get all the information about what's going on uh, digitally. Pittsburgh activist Paradise Gray speaking on efforts to save the financially troubled August Wilson Center for African American Culture. Dave Riley, AURN.com, Pittsburgh. And if you want to know more about saving the August Wilson uh, Cultural Center in Pittsburgh, which is a, you know, we have to understand, we have to get it. All of our stuff, somebody's coming in here stealing all of our stuff, taking it someplace else. August Wilson was honored as a Pittsburgh native. Go to SaveTheAugustWilsonCenter.com for more information. Um, and we're going to have uh, Dr. Kimberly Ellis join us. She is the niece of August Wilson. She was one of the first internet producers of Our Common Ground. And um, I interviewed August Wilson at WTTK uh, for an hour, and he is was one of the most interesting uh, idols of uh, literature 
uh, in this country, the famous playwright, August Wilson, and he has never, never not understood the power of art in black liberation. So it's SaveTheAugustWilsonCenter.com. As Hollywood begins to finally wind down after its biggest week of the year, many folks don't know that this year's Oscars was run by a black woman. Cheryl Boone Isaacs is the first African-American to head the 86-year-old Academy and only the third woman ever to serve as president. And of all the major worries of putting on a show like this, it all came down to Mother Nature. Has this turned out to be everything you wanted it to be? It has been (laughs) such an exciting time in my life in the last week. I can really great. Were you nervous about the rain? I just kept watching the skies. I watched the clouds come in, the clouds go out. I kept talking to the clouds, saying, go away. And they did. They did. So it all worked out. Tanya Hart, AURN.com, Los Angeles. And we thank you for being here with us at Our Common Ground We're going to be moving into our feature segment on colorism uh, tonight, and uh, we hope that uh, we're bringing some some interesting and important uh, dialogue, something that all of us know is the children's rhyme, which captures the definition of colorism Quite precisely, if you're black, stay back. If you're brown, stick around. If you're yellow, you're mellow. If you're white, you're all right. Now, many of you know that little rhyme. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, I can recall when I was about seven years old, um, I had a friend over, and we were jumping rope, and she taught me that. And my mother almost had a conniption. It was like the woman went psychotic flare for a minute over what this little girl, my friend, was teaching me. So it was not allowed, but it certainly played an interesting role in formulating both my Uh, relationships with other children. You all know that I grew up in Jim Crow, segregated, so I wasn't out in the street playing with any white children. Um, I attended segregated schools until I was in the ninth grade, so colorism was something that was not talked about, but you could identify it. It was part of the racial identity um, landscape, and it refers to discrimination based on skin color. Um, Most of the assumptions are that colorism disadvantaged dark-skinned people while privileging those with lighter skin. Now, you all have seen my picture, so you know I'm one of them yellow bones, um red bones, as they called me in the South. But research has linked colorism to smaller incomes, lower marriage rates, longer prison terms, and fewer job prospects for darker-skinned people. 
and that it has existed for centuries, both in and outside of black America, that it makes a persistent form of discrimination, and we need to look carefully, telling the truth and understanding the urgency of the kind and brand of racism that it employs. How did colorism surface? In the United States, colorism has its roots in slavery, and we're going to cover all of that. Our number is 347-838-9852. And while we take this break, one of the things I want you to do is I want you to be able to think through how colorism has affected your life, uh, how it, and I, I, I'm very honest and upfront about, in addition to being the smartest one in the fifth grade, um, my hair and my green eyes and my light skin privileged me in many ways in school and within my community. In many ways, I believe that one of the reasons that I was chosen by the NAACP to integrate the local school when Jim Crow had to be executed in our community had a lot to do with the fact that I was light-skinned and had the same kind of curly hair as the little Jewish girls at the school I was going to. Now I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what is the difference when mugshots, when uh, kids are, 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 are fingered in their schools, whether or not color influences the attitudes I mean, the, the research already shows it, so that, that, that's not even the question. The question is, to the extent that we do it ourselves, do we do it ourselves? We're going to take this break so that we don't have to break in the middle of our discussion on colorism. Our number is 347-838-9852. This is a very important a very, very important, um, um, a very important subject that we need to talk about because in families, families are doing it to family members. Um, we are doing it to ourselves. We do it in terms of who we support. I mean, I look at the the different ways in which entertainers have gotten roles. And um, the kind of people we, we, we listen to, who gets elected, um, why, and um, a whole bunch of things come up. What comes up for you? I want to hear from you, 347-838-9852, because one of the things that we have got to do 
is we have got to have this discussion and we've got to have it in a way that helps us move away from it. Um, you know, I was dining with two African-American women, both successful women in their own fields, and shared with looking back with laughter, regret, and sadness that we still see evidence of colorism holding on the thinking of young people. Um, when when I was in, in uh, junior high school, elementary school, a girl told me that I acted like I didn't know, I acted like I thought I was cute. Well, my parents were telling me I acted like a heathen, but this is what this girl was telling me, and I couldn't figure out what I had done to make her not like me. And uh, as a light-skinned woman, brown-skinned women, um, sometimes um, we get told that we're not real. On the other hand, all the messages coming out of the media, all the messages coming out of our social history, tells dark-skinned girls that they don't count and can be marginalized, which is why I was so glad to um, to see that my friend, actor and producer Bill Duke, released uh, an important and must-see documentary called Dark Girls, which I watched with my granddaughter, who is dark-skinned. And she and I have been having some discussions since she was in high school about her dark skin and how she feels about it and how people um, how people respond to her, especially in that she is in a family where her mother is light-skinned, her father is very um, tan, and um, <clears throat> both of her brothers are very light-skinned with light eyes. One has blonde hair and the other has curly kind of hair, and, and, and she has all of the comp the beautiful compliments of a dark skinned girl. I, I think she's the most beautiful thing that ever happened. Well, that's just me. So I wanna hear how you experience colorism. That is the purpose of this segment. And we're gonna take a break so we don't have to break. It's the top of the hour, 10.59, a minute before the top of the hour. And we're glad to have you with us. Our number is 347-838-9852. And if you are new to Our Common Ground, you are free to call us and let us know that you're a new listener and how we can help. And by the way, I always invite your suggestions about this program. We'll be right back. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. 
broadcasting both free and black. All the cuts are on the indigent, the poor, the children, the elderly, the veterans, wounded veterans, over and over and over again. There's no billions of cuts to the oil industry, big agriculture. There are no tax loopholes being closed. They are protecting the wealthy with a half-hearted assist from Wall Street Democrats, President. The same people who will not allow bills to be passed to build, rebuild our infrastructure, voted $50 billion to rebuild Iraq's infrastructure, $100 billion to rebuild Afghanistan's infrastructure, but not a dime for the United States. These are the traitors of this nation because they aren't in power. See the same thing. We can be as badass as we want. We now live in a nation where doctors destroy health, lawyers destroy justice, universities destroy knowledge, governments destroy freedom, the press destroys information, religion destroys morals, our banks destroy the economy. The inability to defend on all of these fronts, be it voter suppression, and you can go down the line. You can go down the line. The Wizard of Oz is 70 years old. Today, if Dorothy were to encounter men with no brains, no heart, and no balls, she wouldn't be in Oz. She'd be in Congress. <laughs> Advanced Urban Progressive Political Talk Radio, 10 p.m. Friday. Truth Works Network, the Alpha Show. The Alpha Show. India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. It's the I Declare Show with India Declare. 11 a.m. Friday and Saturday. End your week and start your weekend with Real, Raw, and right now. 11 a.m. Blog Talk Radio. I Declare it. And we thank you once again for being with us in the place where we come to speak truth to power and ourselves. This is Janice Graham. Thank you for being with me tonight. Being with all of us, we've got a full chat room. Do we have the full chat room? Oh, yeah, we've got the regulars all in the chat room. If you'd like to join the chat room, it's www.blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and we are going to move into our special uh, feature segment for the night on colorism. And you are welcome to join the conversation at 347-838-9852. You know, we're trying to do, we, we, we adjust this show so that everybody feels comfortable, so that, you know, we if something doesn't work, and I'm beginning to believe, and I get so resentful and so friggin' mad, you know, like, um, because 
we work really hard to make sure that we are doing the kind of talk, the bringing the kind of information, raising the kinds of issues to keep black people focused. And maybe black people don't want to be focused, and um, the test for me is this number, 347-838-9852. I listen to, I listen to talk radio seven days a week. I listen to um, all my friends um, every day. And I listen to this barrage of callers. They can never get rid of the call. That is what talk radio is. And this is not getting any better because we're not getting people to call in. We're not getting people to say, hey, did you listen to our Common Ground last night? You know, one of the things that I always try to do which is why I use the news service of the American um, uh, African American um, Radio Network, uh, American Urban Ra- uh, Radio Network, is because everybody repeats what Rachel Maddow has to say. Everybody repeats what Ed Schultz has to say. Everybody repeats people who are in the mainstream. So we're all. I mean, if if you're just if you're just listening to MSNBC and you're just reading Facebook, then you are really not getting the full compliment. And by the way, we try to maintain our Facebook page, and you can join us at OCG Talk on Facebook. We try to share the kinds of stories, share the kind of information, share the kind of news that you need to be able to resist agitate and organize at the local level because it's all at the local level there's there is nothing that you can do about washington right now as i said uh as we came in so let's get ready for our um segment on colorism and the black community and thank you again for being with us African-American skin tones cover the color spectrum from the lightest of light to the darkest of dark. During times of segregation, some very light-skinned African-Americans were able to pass. Thought to be white, they were able to enjoy the same privileges as long as no one knew their true identity. And then there was the paper bag test. Persons with skin darker than a paper bag were excluded from certain organizations and groups. In today's time, the hue of one's skin is still making a difference. Beyonce's skin lightened in ads for makeup marketed primarily to white women. O.J. Simpson's skin darkened on the cover of Time magazine to make him look more sinister. But here's the rub. Not only is there skin tone discrimination from outside the African-American community, but inside as well. It's called intraracial discrimination. Colorism um, is the belief that there is, like, that one color is better than the other. Um, in most countries, this means lighter skin um, because European colonialism kind of spread that idea globally that, you know, lighter skin has better value. So a lot of times people think that colorism is only important within the black community or within the American black community, but colorism is prevalent everywhere. It's prevalent in India. It's prevalent throughout Asia. Well, show me the ugly child. And why is she the ugly child? Because she's the nice. Show me the good-looking child. And why is she the good-looking child? Because she's nice-looking. My mother and her friend, and she's bragging on me. She said, my daughter is beautiful. She's got great eyelashes. She's got the cheekbones. She's got great lips. And then she's going on, and she adds, 
If she, could you imagine if she had any lightness in her skin at all? She'd be gorgeous. And just that last little part, just all that pride that I had about her, you know, having her brag on me, just dissipated. Just dissipated. And I think that that moment is when I really became aware. A friend of mine had recently had a baby. And so, you know, it was my first time seeing a baby, and the baby was beautiful. And she said, girl, I'm so glad she didn't come out dark. And when she said it, it felt like a dagger, like someone took a dagger and stuck it in my heart because I was used to expecting hearing things like that from other races. But this was someone that I considered to be my sister. There are places I've gone that there are just a lot of whites, and they would tell me, you have such beautiful skin. Is that your hair? Did you dye? Is that your natural color? And, and you know, it's really questionable to me. Why is it that they think I'm so beautiful and my own people don't see any beauty in me at all? He often gets teased about being dark and so forth. And she said to me, you know, it's just really a shame that people do that and, and we're still doing that because I believe people with dark skin, you know, are beautiful. And that really made me feel proud because when I would tell her that, I was thinking about my sister mm -hmm. and what she had gone through and how she had to overcome and get to a point of loving herself. And mm -hmm. so it's heartbreaking to see that this is still going on mm -hmm. in this day and time after, you know, we went through a whole period in the 70s where black is beautiful and it's as if that whole context, that whole time is just... Doesn't even exist with younger generation. Let me ask you this, because being a light-skinned person, I mean, can you relate to what they were talking about? I can, but in a much different way, because I spent my formative years in um, Wyoming, where there are very few black people. I was prominent as a black person with a little afro, and so I very much experienced nigger this, nigger that, um, and very intense racial bigotry, so I absolutely relate mm -hmm. and didn't feel light-skinned, I just felt black. Mm -hmm. And I remember being, and my father is dark-skinned, and I remember um, being in probably the second or third grade and being angry with my dad for making me black because mm -hmm. um, it was my day-to-day -day experience in elementary school was so painful. We know during the time that they were enslaved, there were others who had been either from birth, from rape, from slave owners, who had produced children who were somehow different in complexion than others. These children, they were stratified within that society, uh, dependent upon their complexion. There were sometimes more than 64 distinctions in terms of color shade, hair gradation, and those kinds of stuff by name and the culture, the society would actually learn these subtle distinctions and apply them such that people then were allocated status based on that. The racism that we have as a people amongst ourselves is a direct backlash of slavery. The house niggas versus the field niggas. The paper bag rule, if you're darker than a paper bag. Well, I know growing up in Harlem, I've heard others mention things regarding the paper bag test 
or being a member of Snow and Blow, if your skin is white as snow and it blew in the wind, that gave you some level of credibility or desirability. The paper bag test, when I first heard about it, my mother told me about it. If you were lighter than the brown paper bag, then you were considered beautiful, um, smart. I have never had a problem with my skin color, even though a lot of girls my color do. I mean, just like a girl of any other color, I could get a man, I can get a job, I can do anything they do, maybe even better. So what's the problem? Oh. I understand. We have been tricked. The internet has tricked us. Television has tricked us. Magazines have tricked us. Society has tricked us. Tricked us into believing just because we're not what they call fair, we're less than a woman of anyone else. Little Wayne make verses like, how do you say what's never said? Beautiful black woman, I bet that bitch look better red. And we just laugh. I mean, it's like we're in slavery again, except it's with our own people. You could be black, you could be white, you could be dark skinned, it's okay to be bright. It shouldn't make a difference, but it does. Skin color bias and skin color privilege. How we see ourselves and what difference skin color makes in the black community. Does it affect judicial decisions, employment decisions, friendship and marriage? When we speak colorism, does it bring back the rings of injury, guilt, or shame? It's something we don't often and need to talk about. Good evening, and thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground, our feature segment tonight, Colorism and the Black Community, how you see color and the vision that it informs for you. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for tuning in. question. What do we call each other? In the black community, we seem to continue the tradition of lighter skin and straighter hair being better. And my question for you is this. Why is the train of thought about color in our community still prevalent as a part of our collective mindset? 
this color complex remains a source of great controversy and pain in the African-American community and across much of the African diaspora if you follow uh, the stories out of, especially on the continent, Nigeria, Mali, Liberia, uh, of how women especially are bleaching their skin. I mean, think about that whole image of Sammy Sosa. This man went from pecan brown, see, I know the language, he went from pecan brown to pink white, pink, pink, pink whatever, <laughs> uh, bleaching his skin. Uh, uh, let me pose another question, and I certainly want to hear from you at three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. Here's here's another question. What are some of the discussions that must be conducted inside and outside of our classrooms with our children about this issue of color complex to bring a better understanding? See, because if you understand the history you know this we we have internalized so much hurt so much pain in my mind and it really is about historically just through observation we have seen that people with more european aesthetics and phenotypes are getting more privilege in this society and it really is about us thinking about the framework from which we're operating, like where are these ideas coming from, and being able to acknowledge that they operate actually from outside of our community. These are conceptualizations that have been projected onto us. I want to say that again. They're conceptualizations that have been projected onto us and we see them being affirmed in our society. It, it really is what we have internalized is the white ideal. So it constructs a spectrum, and we can see that you potentially have European blood and we can assume that in comparison to someone who has darker skin, kinkier hair, and a more African phenotype, that you're better than them. It's the idea that European genetics are somehow going to be our saving grace. Our number is 347-838-9852. Now, I don't see much chatter in the chat room over this. I mean, one of the questions that I want to pose is, are we in denial about this or are we in so much pain about this? Um, I mean, we went through an era where black is beautiful with our wonderful uh, natural hair, when natural hair came into into um, both fashion 
Lately, it's been the joyous celebration of the young woman who played the the, the absolutely gorgeous, uh, full of beauty, and you can tell it's inside and out of the young woman who played Patsy in 12 Years a Slave, uh, to the point that people were celebrating her so much on my Facebook timeline that they they were getting me to the point where I, I wasn't liking her too much because every time I, for days, there she was. Um, and I can't recall her name. I don't recall, um, for some reason, I can't recall celebrities' names. I only know Jeffrey, what's his name, and... Um, other lady <laughs> that's I don't know why my brain works like that but that's how my brain works so there you have it um, even when I enjoy a movie or a film uh, or a book I come away and I can't I can recall the storyline and the plot and the whole nine yards but I can't recall the name um, and, and, and the other is, here we are, here, we have an opportunity here to talk about this in a very safe place, and I hope you'll join us in this conversation. The number is 347-838-9852, and I'm telling you, I can't conduct a talk show without callers, and we're going to go to 303. 303, thank you for saving me from hanging myself. <laughs> Good How evening, doing, Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. And good yeah, to hear go, from you. I go by uh, Colorado. I usually call um, Dr. Matthews show. Yes, we've had to uh, cancel that program. Oh, we did. Uh, yes, we did. I am so sorry about that. It was such a great broadcast. But was, Dr. Um, Johnson is out in Minnesota, and he's teaching so many classes, and he has grad students that he has to take care of. So uh, we're looking for someone uh, very carefully uh, no to come into that program. But, but you, still will be, you will be very satisfied with the new show that's coming online uh, next Tuesday after next, Soul okay. Emergence okay. with uh, Dr. Peter E. Matthews. Yeah, and yeah. He's uh, an, yeah, so uh, we're we're really excited about that. No problem. Well, actually, I mean, I called for you actually this week. I, I listen to your show every week, but I usually get it online. Uh-huh. But, well, um, thank you very much. No problem. This time, uh, when I was listening to it online, I heard about this particular show today, so I made sure that I was going to sit on the phone and, and then talk to you about this. Now, you already took my thunder, basically talking about the 12 Years a Slave, and thunder night, thunder ro- roars more than once. Go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I purposely watched it last night in order to talk about today with you in terms of the colorism. Did you catch you, you to watch watched what? I'm sorry, I didn't catch what you watched. I cut, uh, I watched the Twelve Years a Slave last night. Oh yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Did you get a chance to watch it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It, it, it was tough. Uh-huh. It was tough. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, we did a show with Dr. Raymond Wimbush uh, oh, okay. about 12 Years a Slave. You can gotcha. find it in our archives. I'll do that. 
But basically, my question is, I, I want to get your analysis on um, the Patsy. She goes, her real name is Lupita, mm-hmm. but um, she's Kenyan. And I had the same uh, curiosity because everybody was just talking about her, like, you know, how beautiful she is, et cetera, et cetera, which she is. I, I'm not going to dispute that. But I always thought there might be some type of nefarious reason that Hollywood or the mainstream is really pushing her because mm-hmm. we've had a long list of other beautiful dark-skinned women, you know, Alfred Woodard and, I mean, you can just go, Regina King, you can just go down the line. Mm-hmm. But none of them had the same attention as Lupita has. And part of me is thinking, okay, why are they picking her to be the it girl of the year? You know, a couple of years ago, if you remember, it was Gabby Sidibe, uh, the, the precious mm-hmm. lady. Mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. this year's her. What is your analysis on that? Do you think they're doing something nefarious well, when they push yeah, her out I, there? I think or? there are two aspects, two dimensions to that. One in the way in which the black community responded to Lupita, mm-hmm. and um, one in which the media responded to Lupita. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it was it was I, I was struck with the idea that in our community there was one you know there were two two dimensions within our own community. One was that there were especially women who were so pleased to see someone who was as dark and had no real European, had no European features. That's right. Um, And I think people were, women were celebrating. I finally, that there were black women who were celebrating I've finally been called beautiful. Mm-hmm. Then I think that there was another, and this real talk, Colorado, real talk, I think there was a group of black people who hadn't discovered that black was beautiful but was affirmed into that thought by the, mean? affirmed in terms of, embraced that idea and discovered their own comfortability with black is beautiful. Okay. Because somebody else, a whole bunch of people, were saying it. Okay. And when you say a whole bunch of other people, you mean like mainstream, white folk, in other words. Yes, yes. That if white people said it, then it must be true. Oh, yeah. yeah, I see. She is pretty. Yeah. When, in fact, we have been looking at, you know, and I think about the Olympics all the time, especially in the field contests, Mm -hmm. that we have been watching Kenyan women running in the Olympics for a very long time. That's right. And then there was a young. That's right. And then there was the young Nigerian ice skater. Mm-hmm, who was mm-hmm. so wonderful in her skills. Mm-hmm. But I Sorry. think that we never got past her dark skin and her very, very nappy hair. That's right. So we didn't embrace her because the Europeans and the white people in America 
couldn't get past it. But I think with Lupita, what happened was that she's a model. And she's just so graceful. Um, And so there were there were barriers that were broken broken down i mean she um used um she used her features as a celebration and people embraced it and i think that that's what happened on the other hand and it's really interesting that you bring up what's the lady's name Gab- gabby sidibe right gabby sidibe and tell me who my favorite uh, actor is, Jeffrey. What's his name? Jeffrey Wright? Yes, Jeffrey Wright. <laughs> <laughs> That's how bad it is. <laughs> and I love this I'll help this you out, I'll help you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to help a sister out sometimes. <clears throat> but I think with Gabby Sidibe, we were in a defense mode, uh, not around her color, but around her weight. I didn't hear people, I I thought that when people were saying, I got that when people were saying she was beautiful, that they were really saying her weight doesn't matter. Uh uh But I think that had she not have been such a, a, a large woman, that it would have been a different kind of thing other than the, the, the character that she played in Precious. And it's interesting that you brought it up because I just watched Precious again yesterday. I, I have a friend who's here uh, off of the uh, – uh, visiting from the motherland, and she had never seen the movie, and we watched it together, and she is a violence um, intervention worker in 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 Africa, she's in Liberia, the Congo, um, all over the place, and and I wanted to watch it with her because she has to deal with issues of both sexual uh, violence and interfamily violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that you brought it up, but I do think that this whole issue with Lupita had nothing to do with the role of Patsy. It had to do with the embracing uh, a woman of a deep black hue. Yeah. You know, what I call the blue blacks. Gotcha. And I'm wondering if she had been an American. You know, white people love exotics. You, exactly. You call I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. <laughs> she was exotic. I was just going to say that. Mm-hmm. She is exotic, and so um, she was American. If she was American, she would have never gotten this type of press. Thank you. You know what I mean? Even if she had been an American, um, an American model. Mm-hmm. And Not the thing is that that I couldn't get why people were so surprised about her grace and her. Um, her her ability to really articulate her experiences as an actress and being part of that whole Hollywood thing and being part of that film, my God, the woman is a graduate of the Yale Film School. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what would you? What what else would you expect? Exactly. But you know, I think that this thing about color 
is that, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this uh, feature, uh, is that we've got to get real about it. And we've got to see every aspect of it. You know, for instance, my stake in all of this is that my confidence as a child uh, could have very well been broken if I thought that every reward I got came because I was Mm light-skinned. And I know I was a teacher's pet. I was everybody's teacher's pet. I don't know if it's because I talked so much or because I actually did my homework because my mother was the principal of the school and I couldn't could not do my homework or uh, because I had good manners. I shouldn't have to, no child should have to figure out why they get rewards or punishment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew in elementary school that I, I think that a lot of my leadership skills that I garnered when I was a young child came as a result that the, the kids always let me be the leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be because if we needed money, um, I could go to my parents and, and get $2 to go to the movies. I don't know. You know, let, let me ask this question because I'm, I'm over here on the West. Uh-huh. You tell me if, it's, if the same thing is going on over there in Boston on the East Coast. One thing I noticed with, you know, the dark-skinned sisters as opposed to light-skinned sisters, a lot of the dark-skinned uh, women, uh, especially the younger ones, like teenage, early 20s or whatever, they tend to, pre- you know, um, present themselves a lot rougher. You know, these are the individuals that I see, just observation, you know, they wear the, the clothes that are not, I don't know, how am I going to say this, um, uh, n- not welcoming or not pretty, if that makes any sense. You know, they, they walk around. You mean not feminine? Do you exactly, mean that? Exactly, exactly, uh-huh, exactly. Uh-huh, that's, uh-huh. That's, that's what I see here. I don't, I don't know, but if you notice in the introduction that I provide, and I try to provide informed information about any topic that I ask you to, to consider and to talk with with us about that in the in 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 the documentary Dark Girls, the younger girls do talk about thinking that dark skinned girls are viewed as rough mm-hmm. and and angry. And, and that's my question. I'm, I'm wondering, do a lot of the Dark-skinned girls probably answer my question now. Do a lot of them internalize that and show that outwardly when they go out in the streets? Well, think about where where girls and boys in our community, and this is the danger, get the images that they that they absorb uh, in their consciousness about who they are, and so you can look at hip hop and and rap music videos. That's right. Yeah. And see where some of that comes from. Yeah. Actually you a, know, good, a good example of that is uh Nicki Minaj. When Nicki Minaj first came out, she was darker skin. I mean she was about my complexion and the way she dressed, she dressed more street level, you know, the hoodies and the the Timberland boots or whatever. When she mm-hmm. made that transition of being a, a Barbie 
model or whatever you want to call it, putting mm-hmm. the wigs on and pinning her face a lot lighter, then she start wearing the more revealing clothes, the more feminine clothes or whatever. So I, I see I see your point right there. That's that's interesting. Well, I I think that the thing to, that that we have to be very careful about is exposing uh our children to black history. I mean, it is so essential in helping them to understand because um my grandson who is 12 has decided that when he's 15 he wants to dress like Langston Hughes. Mm. Not because somebody told him that, but because he's seen so many. He has has posters and pictures of Langston Hughes because he was named for Langston Hughes that's right. in his, in his life. That he thinks that's cool. Mm-hmm. So we have to really, really guide our our children uh, about that. I mean, one of the things that I think is so heartbreaking is to hear black girls talk about, I mean, like in in the movie Precious, that's real. I want a light skin. Uh, I want a light-skinned boyfriend who has good hair. That's right. I think that one of the things that colorism that nobody is talking about, including the person that I think that right now is on the leading edge of research and writing about colorism, who is Dr. Um, oh God, uh, Doctor. Um, uh, I can't help you here. <laughs> come on, Janice. Uh, Doctor Yaba Blay, uh, okay. who is um, who teaches at Drexel, Drexel University in African mm-hmm. Studies. She is the person who wrote the book and started the project One Drop Project. And for those of you who are listening, you might want to take a take a look at what Dr. Yaba Blay is um, is writing about this subject mm-hmm. um, because she's also saying that history plays so much a part of what this is all about. Yeah. You know, I, I think about Colorado, and I want everyone to think about this. When I look at this report of thousands of preschoolers getting suspended, yeah, I've read the same thing. I am reading into that as well the issue of colorism in our society, which is why this is so important. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. go into any prison in this country and you see anyone that's been there for more for for light sentences. Who are the people that the police are are, are 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 arresting, and who are the people who are being prosecuted? The boys who are dark skinned who have nappy yeah. hair and dreadlocks and braids and bush bush afros or whatever you call them. Those are the kids who are being targeted, whether we like to admit it or not. Those are also the children who we are not defending. Mm-hmm. If you go into some of these programs, Colorado, and I'm, I, you know, I, I'm just trying to keep it real. If you go into some of these programs in our community and you look at the boys and girls, who are they? They are children who have not been harmed by this but who are privileged by this. I know what I'm talking about. 
And if you want to challenge that, the number is 347-838-9852. We know we do it, and we know that we have not been real about this discussion. And it's really interesting because when I really thought I've got to do a show on colorism, it was doing the Lupita explosion. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was really sitting here at this computer saying, if one more person, uh, they're going to make me dislike this lady. Because <laughs> I, I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what you mean. I, I know exactly mm-hmm. what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's is. like, have you just dis- discovered, I mean, uh, one of the things that, I think that we have to we have to have an authentic understanding of our history and why we think that you know I mean we look at our history we look at the, Vanessa Williams we mm-hmm. look at Tyra Banks we look at all the women uh, Lena Horne that's right um, Pearl Bailey made it. Because she was a damn good entertainer. Sammy Davis made it because he was a damn good entertainer. Mm -hmm. Nina Simone made it because, but she was also, I mean, if you think about it and you look at who was pushed in the 30s and 40s and 50s in music and in art, just go back and look at some history photos. Yeah, Nat King Cole's another one. Exactly. I mean, I have been, I was a witness in during Jim Crow in segregated schools where I witnessed children who were of darker hue, and, and it, it, has a, it has its class element, too. Mm-hmm. We have to, to also admit that. But children who were of a darker hue, who didn't have the high-level skilled socialization, and teachers persecuting them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was in the sixth grade, and I, <laughs> I mean, I have a memory, I can't remember anybody's name, but I can, I can tell you what, I can tell you the details of things that happened in my childhood. Mm -hmm. And I can remember black teachers having combs and brushes and making black girls go in. That's why black girls were getting pressed hair so early. Was that in Florida when you were growing up in Florida? Yes, that was in Florida. And no, don't call me and ask me what teacher I'm talking about. I know, I know that people who who are childhood friends listen to this show. Mm-hmm. Don't call me and ask me what teacher I'm talking about, but we know that it happened. I yeah. know that when there was corporal punishment, that there were children of darker skin who were punished because the teacher didn't like them. And we are still doing it in some form. Well, here's, here's a good example: uh, the, the the Trayvon Martin um, trial, the the one witness, the one key witness, the prosecution. That's brother. right. You know, That's I mean, right. 
the way they 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 eviscerate. I mean, her. our reaction to her altogether. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. the image of her. Yeah. And yeah. it it and it was almost like it gave people license exactly. to talk about the way she talked, the way she she dressed, her demeanor. Mm-hmm. Um, and if she had been a frightened teenager with an attitude who was a witness who was be, who was light skinned exactly exactly it would have been different the, the the outcome would have been very different and that my friends is the problem and nobody's talking about it everybody wants nobody's to get around talking, the issue nobody's talking about it but me and my few hundred listeners so yeah. I think Colorado. One of the things is that we've got to talk about it. One of the one of the questions that I want to raise is: uh, you say that you have a parent teacher. You know, it, it gets back to, and it's something that I talk about all the time. I I don't want to hear it that parents are not engaged in their community because they can't get a babysitter, they can't uh, do this, and they can't do that. Because if you are a parent in a school, and you have other children and you have homework, because a lot of these teachers are giving kids homework where they're having to do three and four hours of homework every night in junior high school and elementary school I because the teacher doesn't know what else to do. I can attest to that. My mm-hmm. wife and I will spend the entire evening. We have two kids. I, I deal with the younger boy. She'll deal with the older girl. And we'll spend the entire evening working on just the homework. Absolutely. So, yeah. I Absolutely. That. I mean, I, I think that one of the reasons that I have spent the last um, 50 years of my life in sleep deprivation is because I couldn't even start my life until my daughter's homework got done by 10 o'clock, mm-hmm. and then it wasn't at 11 o'clock that I could have a life yeah. between the and laundry then you're, you're and the... You have to go to bed for your exactly. work. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think that we need to have discussions about it, and I think that parents ought to get smart about it. If I can have a radio program at 10 o'clock on Saturday night, there's no reason why the black parents of a school couldn't have a parent uh, conference, discussion conference uh, every other week online. That's right. That's right. And with the technology, it's so easy now. You don't even have to Absolutely. be there physically. Absolutely. Absolutely. FaceTime, Skype, you know. Yeah. That's right. Well, yeah. Colorado, I'm glad you're with us tonight. And give us a summary of uh, your experience in watching 12 Years a Slave. Well, it was tough. I mean, I think I heard you maybe a few months ago that you couldn't watch it at the theater because you didn't want to be around anybody. Well, I did I watch it at the theater, but I went to this I went into a uh, community theater, uh, community where they had this uh, kind of theater where nobody ever went. Oh. <laughs> and there were like, there were less than ten of us in the theater. And yeah. I went way down so nobody would sit next to me, and I waited until everybody left. Gotcha. Okay. I didn't want anybody to talk to me. I just wanted to flee to my car. Well, I, I was the complete opposite. I, I waited until it was on demand on cable, and then um, last night my wife and I we just sat there. And I mean, to be honest with you, I mean the first half 
was very difficult. And she and I, we looked at each other and we're like, man, I, we don't know if we can if we can finish this, you know. And, but mm-hmm. we, we, we toughed it out. We watched it. It was a beautiful made movie. The guy, you know, uh, the guy who directed it and screenplay, they're, they're geniuses. But it was just so visceral, so real, and so emotional mm-hmm. that, you know, I, got, I came away thinking, you know, damn, I mean, we've, we've gone through a lot of stuff as black people. And the fact yes. that it's 2014 and a lot of us are just not conscious enough to even realize what we've been through. You know, I mean, here in Colorado, we don't have, we have maybe a handful of black businesses, and they're primarily barbershops, hair salons, things like that. And I'm like, okay, if we can just pull our resources together, because all we have is ourselves anyway. I mean, the white folks are not going to bail us out. The, uh, the Asians don't even shop at our places or patronize us at all. All we have is ourselves. But unfortunately, you know, we look at ourselves as, as our greatest enemy. You know, we don't want to patronize ourselves. We don't want to build with ourselves. Well, those are all influences from the outside, and sometimes we have to go home. And this is what I want to – this is what I've always wanted to do with this program. This is like coming home, closing the door, and facing Mm -hmm. the monsters. You know, I know that people think – I try to be clever sometimes, but I'm not a very clever person. (laughs) I try Mm -hmm. to keep, keep upbeat But these are some issues, like this issue of colorism, it is a taint on us. It is keeping us inert. Yeah. Because if we understand the history of it, if we understand the history of just this one detail of our history, then we can unleash, we can remove the barriers, the impediment, mm-hmm. and move to something else. I mean, we have a lot of barriers to overcome because I look at a movie like 12 Years a Slave and I say, my God, we weren't supposed to survive. No, we weren't. No, we weren't. And I think the mainstream, they're surprised that we are still around. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, listen, I've got to go, Colorado, but you stay with us next week. We're doing Witness on the Bridge with Dr. Joyce Ladner. No problem. I'll offer And she will be with us. She is a former uh, interim president of Howard University, a sociologist, uh, social commentator, and Mm -hmm. I am so pleased to have her uh, join us. Thanks for your call, and I appreciate your (laughs) listenership. Mm-hmm. What if I had to your other um, your other partner? Um, he also had a show. He left last year as well. Playfell Benjamin. Yeah, exactly him. He's finishing his book on Obama. He'll be back. Oh, that's. He'll be back. Perfect. Yep. See you next but week. But you know, you can follow him on Facebook. He does a lot of writings, commentaries on the Times. Dot com. Got it. I'll be here next week for you. Okay. Somebody call Chili Willy and tell him I was talking about him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our number is 347-838-9852. And we've only got a short minute. And I have a, a very special offering for you uh, tonight um, since we didn't get any calls. But 
As many of you know, I am also a musician, and my favorite instrument is the piano. And I did this for you. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Common Ground tonight as we examine the issue of colorism and how we see skin color in our own community. The impact of colorism in the black community and how we change our attitudes as they act as barriers to black liberation. This is Janice Graham and I'll be listening for you and for your enjoyment, a little bit of Janice Graham on piano. Fires of the Civil Rights Movement of the 60s, and as a sociologist and academic leader, she is a witness from the bridge. She is Dr. Joyce A. Ladner. Her scholarship offers a thesis of a conceptual framework that black people must formulate their own definitions and concepts of social phenomena from a perspective untainted by ethnocentricity and cultural arrogance of those who seek to compare aspects of black culture to a white middle-class model. Joyce Ladner has served as a key commentator on national social issues. She's appeared on such news programs as CBS Evening News, NBC Evening News, Nightline, and McNeil Lehrer News Hour. She has written books which include Tomorrow's Tomorrow, The Black Woman, The Ties That Bind, Timeless Values for African American Families and Mixed Families, and she co-wrote The New Urban Leaders, and the death of white sociology, of which she was the editor. At Howard University, she worked for the Academic Affairs Office, served as Vice President of Academic Affairs, and in 1994 was made Interim President, becoming the first woman to hold the position at Howard University. She is a sociologist, an author, an outstanding and innovative academic and educational leader, making her mark in black history and black progress. She is a witness from the bridge. Dr. Joyce A. Ladner on Our Common Ground, March 29th, 10 p.m. live. 
witness from the bridge, Dr. Joyce A. Ladner. Join us. with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you. Be
speaking truth to power and ourselves. Now